You're listening to Docs Outside the Box, episode 56, with Dr. Rob Gore, executive director of the Kings Against Violence Initiative. Welcome to Docs Outside the Box podcast. This is your official show, looking inside the minds of cutting edge and innovative doctors. Think you'll find these stories in any medical textbook? Sorry, you're getting real life insight from men and women pushing the envelope beyond medicine. Ordinary doctors doing extraordinary things. Let's start now with your host, Dr. Nee Darko. This episode is brought to you by Set for Life Insurance. Protect yourself against life setbacks with Set for Life Insurance. Set for Life Insurance gets you disability and life insurance at a reduced cost with their exclusive discounts. Now that's why I use them. Visit www.setforlifeinsurance.com and tell them Dr. Darko sent you. What's good, everyone? Welcome back to another episode of Docs Outside the Box. I am the Doc Outside the Box, Dr. Need Darko. And I'm mad excited about this next guest. My next guest is Dr. Rob Gore. You have heard about him all over. If you haven't, you are living under a rock. Dr. Rob Gore is an ER physician who works currently at Kings County Hospital. And he is literally changing lives on a daily basis, not only with the practice of emergency medicine, but also with his program, which he's getting numerous accolades for. And the name of his program is called the Kings Against Violence Initiative. And what that is, is it is a hospital and school-based youth violence intervention prevention and empowerment program that targets teenagers that have been either injured as a result of violence or are at high risk for violence or recurrent violent injury. Now, I got a chance to first meet Dr. Rob Gore a little over 10 years ago when I was a medical student. I was doing a sub-internship at Cook County Hospital. He was finishing up his chief year in emergency medicine. I got a chance to interact with him for a couple of weeks. And I'm not going to lie, I was really impressed with him back then. But I had no idea that he would take this huge leap and have such a large effect on his community back in Brooklyn. Now, this episode is for anybody who always or anybody who always wanted to have a really large impact, not only just in society, but more specifically in their community. This is the blueprint for you right here in this interview. He's going to take us through his community, take us through the history of Brooklyn and the effects that it has had on him. He's going to take us through the thought of Kavi and how, in essence, he had so many multiple no's and how he took his experiences in Haiti in a very low resource, low-funded area, and use that to make Kavi very successful. He's also going to take us through how he handles multiple no's and how you can still create change, even though you're getting so many no's. The big thing, too, that I found really interesting that I think you all are really going to learn a lot from is now that you get a program, now that you have a little bit of funding, now that you have a curriculum, how do you convince the students, the teachers, as well as the parents to fall in line? And we're also going to learn a little bit about how meditation helps them get into that quiet space and able to focus better with Kavi. And as always, with all of my guests, he's also going to answer hashtag I'm not just a doc. Get your paper, get your pen, get your whatever you use to take notes. This is the episode that you're going to want to keep notes on. Without further ado, I present Dr. Robert Gore. Really excited to present to you all a doctor who has actually um, played a major role in my life in terms of someone who I admire and respect a lot, Dr. Robert Gore. He's on our show. He is the emergency room physician that you have seen all over the place. This gentleman is the founder and executive director of the Kavi program, which is short for Kings Against Violence Initiative. It is a violence intervention, prevention, and youth empowerment program located in Brooklyn, New York, which if you haven't seen it on Facebook, YouTube, then you're living under a rock. You need to get outside the box. This guy, his program is everywhere. Dr. Robert Gore, welcome to Docs Outside the Box. Oh, thanks again for having me, Nick. 
hey man this is a year in the making i've been trying to get you on the show for a while <laughs> you are a very very busy man we've had some uh, technical difficulties early on but nonetheless you uh you stayed with me we're here um i can't wait to to get all this information from you i think the audience is going to learn a bunch from you so welcome again to the show man Oh, thanks again for having me. I, I apologize for 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 the delay. Oh, come well. on now, come on, man. You uh, are you all over the place, man. I mean, you are obviously working with the Kavi program. You're an ER physician, and then you know you're out there also trying to raise money for the program. You're snowboarding. I mean, you are literally the Renaissance man. And I've been following you from afar and through social media, and I've been really impressed. So there's no need to apologize whatsoever, my man. So look, before we get into the nitty gritty of the interview, tell us a little bit about uh, yourself, where you're from, where you grew up, things like that. So I'm from, I'm from Brooklyn, New York, and uh, I, I grew up in pre-gentrified Fort Greene and then Flatbush uh, in the 80s and Flatbush. 90s. Yeah. <laughs> uh, from people who aren't familiar, Flatbush is... Well, actually, Brooklyn itself uh, is a special place. <laughs> it's complex, you know, right? It, it's, it's so complex. And, you know, most deaf called it the planet. Right. And we all, you know, often we, we, we all you know, refer to it as planet Brooklyn because if, if you can think it up, uh, if you think of a person, any specific shape, type, ethnicity, they are here. But because of the dynamics and, and how the communities are situated, there are all these interesting overlaps and these different blends that are unlike any any place on the planet. Plus, it's accessible, too. Oh, my goodness. Tell me about it. Now, I grew up in Lefrak City in Queens, not too far from mm-hmm. Shea Stadium, right near off of the Van Wick. And, you know, those are the projects, you know what I'm saying? But <laughs> I had family that lived in Brooklyn, and I was scared to go into Brooklyn during those times and stuff, you know. And Brooklyn has changed a lot, you know, some for the better, some for the worse, depending on how you want to look at things. Um, but I did see you were interviewed on the History Channel and you were talking about growing up in Brooklyn. You made it a point to say pre-gentrified Brooklyn. Why, why do you why do you talk about that? Why do you feel like that's really important to say? Well, I, I think people look at Brooklyn and we, people look at, you know, around the world, Brooklyn as this special mecca. And it is. Um, and they see this one facade to it um, as the, almost as this Shangri-La. And, and, you know, Brooklyn has been home. Uh, to many people, and and its influences in, in every aspect of of what we do, but many newcomers don't know what it was like, and the, the history of it is, is so important for how this how this and we're not even a city, but how the borough has evolved, and and I like to you know make it a point, you know people, you know I grew up in downtown Brooklyn and in Flatbush, and you know downtown Brooklyn, even Brooklyn itself, it was it was home, but it wasn't really pretty. You had, you had nice trees in the parks periodically, uh, but it didn't have that same, you know, element where you've got sidewalk cafes and, and soul cycle, was a soul cycle and, and, and all these businesses thriving and you got a chance to hang out and it was, you know, you can walk around at any point in time. You know, don't get me wrong. I do like how it's evolved in the sense that, you know, I, we can still hang out in our borough without feeling like your, li- your life is going to be threatened, but it didn't always look like that. Mm. And when people who were, you know, the reason why um, we often talk about gentrification uh, and, and why pre-gentrification was such an important part of Brooklyn itself is because, you know, now many people were displaced and, and people move into an environment without really understanding, you know, the importance of the significance of it. And we want to make sure that we don't forget those who were, were here uh, a long time because they are essential and an important part of the culture of Brooklyn, even what makes Brooklyn, Brooklyn right now. That's a really good point. I appreciate you sharing that. So you said you grew up in Fort Greene or near that area. Right. Did you ever run into Spike Lee? So Spike Lee was my neighbor. He lived two doors down. Yeah. Uh, I grew up on Washington Please, Park. Please, baby, 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 baby. Please, yeah. baby, baby, baby. But that was my so, man. <laughs> yeah. So he was a lot older, you know, substantially older than me. But um, he lived a couple of doors down uh, on Washington Park. Uh, his father was still there. Matter of fact, his father still lives over there, um, and his, you know, it, that block itself was pretty cool. Um, you, there were a lot of kids, you know, all of different age ranges, but Mr. Lee used to teach us music, so he taught us about scales and harmonizing, and like we would go into, you know, the, the downstairs apartment, and he would play on his piano, and so we, you know, we were exposed to that, and that's just what people did back then, because it, it was it was a very it was very much a community. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, people took care of each other's kids and, you know, they invited them into their homes and they, they shared their experiences, uh, particularly a lot of the creative arts. Um, I know people talk about there's a, that film, Brooklyn Bohemian. Um, but, you know, we lived it in, in the in the 80s and there were artists, there were sculptors, there were tons of musicians on our block. Uh, Spike was in the process of becoming a filmmaker. He hadn't made Cheese Gotta Have It yet. But we remember, you know, oh, Spike is coming and he's coming on the block. And so we all know who he was. But um, everyone tried to share their talents with the other kids on the block, which was pretty dope. Um, he's one of my favorite directors, actually, man. Yeah. And I eat. You know what? When you when you break ground, and you know all you have to do is see somebody that's in that position, and you go, okay, you know what? He's doing it. Therefore, there's at least hope for me. Right. You know, same right. thing. We had the same experience with, with other physicians. Um, you know, I remember I, I was 16 years old when when I realized I wanted to become a doc. I, mean, I just wanted I wanted to teach. I wanted to be a change agent. You know, I, I grew up in a house. My mom. Let's is let's a, get into the nitty gritty. Tell tell us about yeah. that. What was you like before so, you went to med school? Like, how was you in high school? What was Rob Gore like like then? So, I, I, so you you've got the junior high school. What I feel like they're different eras. You know, I, I did well in high school. I graduated valedictorian, uh, but before that, I almost. I started off in a conditional program at Brooklyn Tech. Mm-hmm. Let's let's back let's go back junior high school. So, I, oh, so you went to Brooklyn Tech, up, okay? No, no, I started at Brooklyn Tech in, in, in the summertime, but I, I went to a place called Philippa Schuyler, uh, which okay. is uh, a gifted and talented middle school uh, that had kids of color, and it was in the heart of Bushwick. And mm-hmm. so we, so black and Latino kids, and a couple Asian, a handful of Asian kids uh, went to junior high school in Bushwick, and we came from all over the borough. But what was cool about it was this, this, it was a special sanctuary where it was, it, was, it, was, you know, it was a really positive thing for you to do well. Like the popular kids, the kids who did well. And I think when you're in that type of environment where people look like you, the teachers look like you, and, this, and, and everyone around you is invested in your, your educational well-being, then you know what it's like uh, to have excellence be a part of uh, a part of your DNA, and that's even outside of what goes on in the home environment. Um, you know that was definitely evident for me. But you know when you start getting your hormones and like that age 11, 12, 13, you know your mind is all over the place. And I remember I had for some reason I went from doing really well, and then I started getting I had fifty fives on my report mm. card and nine and ninety fives, and my mother said. Was you trying you know, to be cool? No, I don't. I don't know. There's some things I just didn't get. I think right. the focus was difficult. Like you know, I had a hard time sitting still. But I also remember during some of those times I wasn't as physically active, um, just because for whatever reason. You know, I, I played sports as a kid, and then like there was like a, a brief moment where I just wasn't as physically active. And I know, you know, that combined with hormones and, and changing and becoming, mm-hmm. a, you know, being a preteen, you know, really you know, has an impact on your focus. And she told me that no stupid people in the family, we're not going to start any new traditions. And then I, my dad threatened to send me to military school. Uh, <laughs> like they were really serious about that. And they started getting applications. And so he was like, oh, you, you think you're you think you tough? You think you're, gonna do, you're not going to do what you're supposed to do? Guess where you're going to be going to school. And so I had this rapid <laughs> turnaround. And I said, you know, I don't think I want to. <laughs> I like fatigues and I wait, like wearing boots. And I like camo, but I don't really think I want to go to military school. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I started, I started shifting and started doing my work. <laughs> um, but I wound up, I wound up going to Brooklyn Tech in a conditional program and screwed around in that program. Then uh, I begged and pleaded, and I got a chance to go to Catholic high school because my zone school in Flatbush was kind of was exceptionally rough. Mm-hmm. Uh, and luckily, you know, we had some resources, so I wound up going to Catholic school. I went to uh, Bishop Lachlan, which is down in. Oh, Florida. you went to Bishop Lachlan? Okay. Yeah, so I went to Lachlan, which was which was such a, 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 a an amazing place for me. You know, the school was smaller, um, and I got a chance to play sports. And if you know, if you acted up, you know, they definitely call home. But at that point. You know, I figured, you know, my folks are, you know, paying money that they don't have to send me to school. And I didn't feel like acting up anymore. But I think running track really got me to be able to sit still because, you know, I have ADD. Uh, but, you know, we didn't call it ADD back then. You just, you know, you just called it, oh, he's just hyper. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think running track really helped put me in a, a different 
uh, you know, helped me focus a lot. So I could sit still for long periods of time. And I went from being all over the place to sitting still for exceptionally long periods of time and reading and retaining the information. And I remember the first time I went into an exam and I was like, oh, shoot, it's like I'm cheating. And I, I know all the answers and my mind wasn't all over the place. And I, I started figuring out there was a, a direct correlation between my physical activity and my ability to focus. And so, if, mm. you know, I know, you know, I've shared some pictures and you've seen stuff online. You know, I, you know, I'm, I'm pretty physically active, but it, it really helps uh, channel a lot of the energy so right. that I can sit still and focus for long periods of time, which are important for uh, the kind of work that we do. When, when you went to, well, which medical school did you go to? I went to SUNY Buffalo, uh, SUNY which Buffalo. was uh, which was also pretty dope. My fam- I was born in Buffalo, but raised in Brooklyn, and okay. my mother's side of the family uh, is is in Buffalo. My grandparents moved back and forth between uh, Jackson Heights, Queens, and, and Buffalo. And then when I got to medical school, they were a lot older, and so they just settled up there. Mm-hmm. And getting a chance to build with family uh, during you know pretty intense and stressful times, you know, throughout those four years was was important. Um, but also, you know, having, you know, my grandfather's, you know, we were in the kitchen one day and, you know, I, I had this look on my face and I probably, I don't know if I failed the test or, you know, got pimped in, in the hospital pretty badly. <laughs> and he said, I know it's tough, but he said, you got to go for me. And I didn't really understand what he was talking about. And you know, my grandfather grew up uh, in South Car- in uh, Lancaster, South Carolina, and then moved to Buffalo when he was like maybe 10 or 12 or something. And he, you know, they were sharecroppers uh, in the in the South, and they had to leave. They 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 fled their land in the middle of the night because they were indent, considered to be indentured servants and owed money. And if they caught you leaving, then you could be lynched. And you know, he didn't have some of those same opportunities. He even even when he was in Buffalo, he got a half scholarship to go to Howard, uh, which was his dream school, and got a full scholarship to go to Shaw University, and. He never went to college. Uh, his, his family said, you know, we don't even have enough money for bus fare to get you to college. And we need you to work to help support the family. Mm. This is also the time wow. of the Depression. Right. So my grandfather didn't go to college. And, you know, you look at Jim Crow, you look at, you know, segregation, you look at, you know, minimal opportunities for men of color and women of color. And you see, you know, you, you know it's it's the most frustrating thing to you know, have these ideas and have this insight and to still, you know, keep up on current events, understand the world and, and how it works. But you can't get that shot to go there because you were born on the wrong side of the tracks or with a different level of affluence. Mm. And, you know, he became an entrepreneur still with limited education. And so, you know, he still sent all his kids to college and made sure he did the same thing for his grandkids. But, you know, he said, you got to go for me. Um, you know, you realize he's like, look, I didn't have those same opportunities and it's, it's always going to be tough. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. Uh, but you've got to stay that course because there's so many other people that are looking just based on your example uh, behind you. And you have no idea. Like, you know, you, we, you know, when you and I were speaking earlier before the interview officially started, you know, you know, you said I was the first black young black physician that you had come in contact with. And I'm like, wow, you know, you don't sometimes you don't realize that kind of impact or even just seeing somebody that looks like you in that space that understands where you come from, that took the same trains, that understands your slang and and eats the same stuff that you do. And then you go, you know what? They're here. They did this stuff. They come from where I live. All right. It's going to be okay. So there was um, while you're in Brooklyn growing up, obviously, uh, we both know, and everybody knows, pre-gentrified Brooklyn, there was violence there, right? That's right. that's not anything shocking. In Atlanta, being on the West End, um, I went to, I did my residency at Morehouse, um, but I know the West End, there's some violence there. Right. And obviously in Chicago, there's some violence there also. Right. Um, and then afterwards, you came and decided to go to Brooklyn, right? right? Okay, so as an ER physician, graduating, going and, and training at Chicago, at, at Cook County, you are basically exposed to a bunch of different disease processes. You can handle any type of situation. Right. You, which means that you can go anywhere. You have the pick of the litter. You can get, you can go anywhere you want to go. You can get any type of money that you want to go, or that you want to get. Why did you decide to go back to Brooklyn? 
Brooklyn, so Brooklyn was is home. Uh, my family's here. Like my parents, my dad's still in Flatbush, which is you know, you know the hospital is uh, in East Flatbush, so that was part of it. But I'd also gotten a scholarship to come back and practice in underserved uh, communities within New York State. And if I was going to come back to New York State to practice in an underserved community, I was definitely going to come back home. Um, there are many of us who get an opportunity to leave and see something different, but we don't always come back. And if you're looking at, at how communities get a chance, not just change, but evolve, then you, you need to have people who understand uh, what's going on. And, you know, I remember I, I was talking to my, my, my folks, you know, my, my plan was to go around the world and see as many things as possible so that I could come back and take those experiences and, and share those experiences with people uh, that were in the neighborhood. And uh, I, I spent, when I was a med student, I, I rotated at Kings County Hospital uh, in the Department of Emergency Medicine. This was shortly after September 11th, so, you know, a very different time. Uh, but I, you know, I, I remember walking down the hall and saying, you know what, I don't think I'm going to do residency here because I need to go out and see something else completely outside. I need to get even more uncomfortable. And, you know, mm, Brooklyn, okay. Brooklyn to a certain extent, you know, because it is home, you know, you, you know where I grew up, I, I'm, there's a level of comfort that's here. But I, I wanted to get uncomfortable even more and try a city, living in a city that I had never lived in before. And that's one of the reasons why I went to Chicago. And, you know, I, my goal was to take all these experiences that I learned, you know, from upbringing in Brooklyn, you know, living in Atlanta and, 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 and have mentorship uh, that took place and, and, you know, understand brotherhood and sisterhood and seeing what's going on in Buffalo and, and take those experiences of what it's like to be in a, a blue collar town that was, um, you know, had, you know, you know, large pockets of, of urban poverty and, and definitely had marginalized communities and then see what was going on in Chicago with, you know, the violence and the conflict going on there and then share what's going on in Brooklyn. Um, I wanted to make sure that people saw that it, it is okay for you to come back. It is okay for you to come back and live in a black neighborhood uh, where, where you spent a lot of your childhood and without feeling like, oh, wow, uh, you just couldn't afford to live someplace else. What caused you to create Kings Against Violence Initiative? Why did you even decide to create one? Why did you even think that you, out of anybody, could could fix this problem? Talk to us about that. Uh, so um, when, I was in, when I was in Morehouse, you know, me and my friends, we, all, we always mentored, either even on campus or in the surrounding community in, in southwest Atlanta. And it was funny, like a bunch of us, we all talked about creating youth, youth programs. Uh, and, and, you know, we talked about what these programs were going to look. We even talked about what a building would look like if we could have it. And what would that look like if we were all together? And then, you know, we, we left Atlanta and then kind of went on a professional school. And some of us went on a residency. And so, you, you know, it was always something that was in the back of our minds as far as doing something. And when I was at Cook, um, I did a... My, my senior grand rounds was about youth violence. And I, I remember being in the ER one day, and it was like a cold and rainy day in summertime in Chicago. So there was nothing coming in. And it was like, you know, there was a lot of blunt trauma. So car accidents were coming in, some uh, MVC rollovers coming from the Dan Ryan. But it wasn't, there wasn't any penetrating trauma. And one of my colleagues said, I'm bored, and I hope something exciting comes in. And everybody starts to chime in. And say, yeah, I hope something exciting comes in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I want to do some procedures, you know, because excitement, you know, meant penetrating trauma. Penetrating trauma meaning meant you're you're probably going to wind up either intubating a patient, putting in a chest tube, doing a thoracotomy, you know, opening up their chest, um, or, or going to the operating room. But you know, excitement also meant that it was somebody that was going to come in looking like me either coming from the neighborhood I live in or coming from one of the neighborhoods my relatives lived in. Mm. And it, it like clicked and it was, you know, I started thinking about, you know, doing less of a Band-Aid approach, which is a lot of the work that we, not to say that the work that trauma surgeons or ER docs do isn't important with keeping people alive. I mean, a part of it, you got to keep people alive. But I didn't want to just patch people up and, and not prevent this stuff from happening over and over again. And I so mean, I in said, essence, that's what we're doing though, right? Yeah. I mean, we are... We're fixing them up. You always want to know, like, what's the follow-up? Right. What I'm doing, am I really having an effect in the community? Yes, this person is back on his feet. But, like, you're taking it to a whole different level. Like, you have studies to show that. Like, what? If someone gets shot, if a young person gets shot 
or is in a stabbing, like the the chance of them returning back to the ER mm-hmm. what within five years, what's the percentage? Like 50%? It's, it's like close to 50%, and that rate oh of being God. killed is uh, about close to 20, even more, maybe more than 20%. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for black men, we're dying. You know, that's the homicide's the number one cause of death for us ages 15 to 34. For black women, it's the number one cause of death for women ages 15 to 24. Latinos, it's 15 to 34. You know, it's, wow. it's, you know so you, you got all these different things that are coming up, and it's like, all right, at what point does, do you start figuring out, you know, how do we prevent this stuff from coming in in the first place? And so I, I did a, my senior grand rounds was about youth violence. Um, I had found some articles while we were cleaning out an office, and it was about gun violence and all these gun violence studies from the 90s. And, you know, based, and then plus that experience I had in the trauma ER, this had to have been like August or July of 2005. And it's like, all right, this is what I'm going to talk about. And um, my, uh, my program director, Steve Bowman, um, told me, he said, you need to present something that means something to you. Mm. And, he, and he told me to look up, uh, what was that book? Uh, Freakonomics. Yes. And freaking, so I, uh, I, he said, just read it. It's going to give you some ideas. So I read Freakonomics, and there was a chapter about why do drug dealers live with their mothers. And I was like, wow. And it was, you know, he started talking about drug dealing and gang violence and the economics around that and why people do certain things. And then I really started looking at how do you prevent this stuff from happening in the first place? And so I kept, I started lecturing about youth violence. And then I continued to lecture about it and continue. And then kept sketching out ideas when I moved back to Brooklyn and said, you know, there's no intervention program here. There's stuff out in Oakland. There's a new program out in Boston, but there was nothing in, in Brooklyn. And so my goal was to start creating that stuff. And I, um, I, um, I kept sketching out ideas and ideas. And at the time, I was one of the assistant residency directors um, for our Department of Emergency Medicine. And so I was working on a lot of curriculum uh, development work. And, you know, you start thinking, like, how do people think? How do they learn? You know, you know, how do young people learn? How do adult learners learn? And, you know, really started, you know, creating this framework for what evolved into Kavi. And I didn't have as much time. You know, we, we started talking to elected officials about, you know, funding and resources and started applying, you know, tried to apply for some grants. And people said, wow, great idea. There's no money. And, you know, that happened over and over again. And we even got in trouble for uh, meeting with some elected officials. <laughs> but that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, we, uh, you know, in, in the summer of 2009, uh, I, had, I, I got frustrated with a minority recruitment in our Department of Emergency Medicine. You know, not that it wasn't diverse, but I wanted to make sure that you know, we had a way to build in build relationships with students of color. Um, they were long, more long term instead of just trying to work with people as rising fourth year medical students. And I, I developed a program called MMSEM, which stands for Minority Medical Student Emergency Medicine, um, and we called the MMSEM Summer Fellowship. And MMSEM was created to increase to provide mentorship and create an environment. Uh, to focus on leadership and development and project and program development. So this is like the beginnings almost of Kavi, basically. Right, the beginnings of Kavi. Um, but it's, it was for medical students interested in emergency medicine, and we always took pre-medical students uh, who were interested in emergency medicine. And the first project uh, that the students had to work on, um, like I, we had like seven students. They came from all over the country, Ivy League medical schools, historically black medical schools, public medical schools, and we only had funding for two of those students. And they, some commuted from way out in Long Island and had never been in New York State before. They commuted from New Jersey, but happened to live in D.C. and were from Nebraska. So people came from all over, and they were putting 60 to 80 hours a week uh, on these different projects. And I was like, wow, I think we're on to something with this kind of environment that was being developed. We only had funding for two of them. And they, these students did this program pro bono, but uh, uh, three of the students in that in the program uh, were tasked with helping develop a violence intervention program. I had stacks of notes and you know pads and sticky notes and and, and project presentations about what a best practices approach would look like. 
And I said, you all going to help me create this program. And I hadn't had research students or any, any interns. And so these young women, um, Adrian Stevenson, Sarah Jameson, and Michelle Garrido came up with the name Kavi. Um, wow. Yeah. Um, one is family practice. Uh, Michelle's family medicine. Adrian um, wound up becoming an OBGYN. She's in D.C. And Sarah's an emergency medicine doc uh, in New York City. And they came up with the name Kavi and you know, created our first official presentation with all these best practices looking like an, a, a program. And it was like, oh, I think we're on to something. But I think, you know, every, we all try to do this stuff as solo on a solo effort or with like one other person and, and you need that team dynamic. And so when we started working with them and they came up with a simple thing, just like a name, it gave it a, a, a real body. And it's like, okay, we have something now. And then we started applying for grants over and over and over and over again, but kept being turned down saying, great idea, no money, no money, no money. Now, Around the same time, I'd gotten into doing some work in Haiti, and so that was we just kept doing that. We started doing you know large scale trainings with you know training um, lay people and medical professionals and first aid and emergency response. We were training drivers and laborers in first aid and emergency response, and then even de- developed a training program. And you know, with all with this very very super super small budget. But we were learning how to build capacity and learn how to integrate within the community. And so I came, you know, coming back to Brooklyn, I'm like, uh-huh. I'm like, wait a second, we've been doing the this light stuff bulb went off, light bulb yeah. comes off, and we've been, I'm like, we've been doing this stuff in Haiti. Why can't and you I succeed said, in Brooklyn? I was like, why can't we succeed succeed in Brooklyn? Uh, and then in um, the summer of 2011, after being turned away for grant after grant, I said, you know what? I said, fuck this. We're going to launch this program independent of finances. We're going to start this program. We're going to to scale back. We're not going to focus on hospital-based intervention right now. We're going to take this program to the schools because the schools already have a, you know, one big things I learned in in Haiti is that if you already have a pre-existing infrastructure, it doesn't have to be perfect, but that's a central point where you can start. And you already have a cohort of people that are there. We're going to use, we're going to build it using interns we're going to, I know I can convince my friends to do some stuff, but we're going to focus in the, in the school that's across the street from the hospital and we're going to build it from there because you already have kids there. And it also ch- shifted our focus in, instead of doing the intervention with people who've been shot and stabbed, which was like a big, you know, a big part of what we were trying to do and said, we're going to make this stuff, we're going to prevent this stuff from happening in the first place. And that's why we started taking it to the schools and we started building it within the school with four kids uh, who were, you know, recommended to us by one of the school principals um, and school social workers for, you know, being kids who, you know, they had had some troubles with. And by the end of the year, we had 50 plus kids programming Mm, five days a week, um, a hospital and a school program and all doing this with no money. I was paying out of my pockets and I recruited my friends. I remember you said you were buying pizzas out of your own. Buying you were paying pizza. for food, everything. Yeah, buying pizza. You know, buying you know, Brooklyn pizza. But Brooklyn pizza is the bomb, though. So, yeah, Brooklyn pizza is the bomb, and and, <laughs> it, and it's cheap and it's good. But it's you know we've always you know people have traditionally um, shared ideas and, and engaged in in uh, meaningful discussions and dialogue over food, and you got to get people there. You know that's that's one thing. So that's what we started doing, and you know had program you know incorporated you know my medical students uh we incorporated the resident physicians who were working with us you know you know who are at king's county and suny downstate and even resident physicians who were you know one of my mentees that i met just like i met you um a sister named uh she's dr darima jenkins um i forgot her her new last name uh dr darima hughes uh she's an emergency physician in atlanta i met her when she was a medical student and she came to do an elective with me during residency and said, I said, Darima, can you create our girls program? I need, I want to do this properly. I don't want to just, you know, do this thing haphazardly and let's start doing focus groups. And so she developed a template along with another person, um, Sharina Sutar, they created our girls program. Mm. Um, and so we just started building in, you know, all these different people, you know, from social worker, graduate students, ER social workers, Friends, family, colleagues, students, everybody started coming together to make this stuff happen. Well, let me let me ask you a question. Let's take it back to 
that first day where yep. you have four students right in front of you and they're probably looking up like, what are we here for? Mm-hmm. Like, what what was that experience like? Tell us about <laughs> like we, we want to be a fly on the wall during that first experience where you have a curricula. Mm-hmm. Um, you have four students who are here and they're Kavi. What's Kavi? Like, what am I here right. for? Uh, so it, it's, you know, they, they definitely started looking at us like, why are we here in this room? And I think it's, you know, we first started asking them, we weren't, you know, we told them what we were, you know, our goal was, and they were kind of like, okay. And the first <laughs> questions that we asked, you know, and I told them my story, you know, why was I there? And then I wanted to hear, you know, who they were. And when you got a kid who's considered to be a knucklehead kid, and we were all knucklehead kids, you know, the kid who's disruptive in class, the kid who's shouting stuff out, the kid who can't sit still, the kid who's falling asleep in class. Um, because they had a sugar rush and now that the sudden that sugar rush died out and they don't have any, <laughs> they have nothing left in their tank. And so they're sleeping in the back of the class or that person who's stressed out and has got a lot on their mind and sleep is the only way that they can kind of feel calm. Uh, we've all been those students. And, you know, when we started talking to them, you know, because now they didn't have this massive, you know, audience in the classroom with like all the other classmates, but it was only a few of them. And wanted to find out who they were. And once we started talking about who they were and what they did and what was important to them and, you know, what their communities were like and, you know, why they even were, were sent to, to work with us, um, I think they were like, okay, all right, I'll, I'll listen to you. And you brought, some, brought me some food, so I, I, I'm okay. And, you know, it definitely smelled a lot better than the free-free. And then, <laughs> and then you know, like, like anything else, you know, when, when you're working with young people, you've got to be consistent. And right. That's what I was going to ask you. So how did you – did they all come forward. back? Did well, they all come back? Like is it like a weekly program at we, this point or – At this point, we're doing stuff weekly. And, okay. And, you know, you, we still got to get the kids and, you know, get them from down the hall and they're running around the hall. And some of them are like, oh, man, I don't want to go. But we pulled them out of class. And so if we pull you out of class, that means you miss your class and you don't – especially if you were cutting it or trying to get out of it anyway – and so that was a little bit of incentive to get people to class. It's like, all right, we got pizza and we get out of class. Okay, I'll come. I might not want to sit there and I'm not ready to talk about stuff just yet, but at least you keep them coming. And then the next thing, we, came, we kept coming back and then showing up on days that there was, they didn't have school. And so they start getting used to seeing you and you realize, they go, oh, this wasn't just a fly-by-night thing. And, you know, I'm, I'm starting to see you. I remember this one dude had his pants like way down and he saw this is like after week number three. I'm just walking down the hall and, you know, he said, oh, hey, hey, doc. And then he just like pulled up his pants and stopped running. And I was like, oh, I think they they're developing this respect, respect you. for us. <laughs> and I didn't even say, anything. you know, like when your mother shoots you that look or, or your father looks at you, your grandfather, and, you, you know, once once you see that look, you're not supposed to do anything. You're supposed to just stop in your tracks. It, that kind of that happened. And it was like, we got them. I was like, they, they bought into what it, you know, us just being there consistently. And then they said, you know what? I got a. They couldn't they could never remember the name Kavi. You know, that took like a whole year and changed, <laughs> like about a year uh, for it to finally uh, set in after reminding them every day, every day, every time we saw them. Uh, but they would ask, he said, you know, Dr. Gore, can, can my friend come to the group? And it was like, oh, OK. So now they want to bring their friends. And you're dealing with peers, you know, you're dealing with teenagers who, you know, you know peer behavior and, and, you know, and peer interactions are exceptionally important. And so then the kids started recommending other kids to come to us because they felt like it was a safe space and we got free food. There was much better. There's a lot better than the free free. But, you know, going there and showing up every day and then going to talk to their teachers about them and and speaking about them in a positive fashion, you know, were, were ways that we started really building relationships with them. You know, like, you know, something, you know, every kid, everybody, not even just a kid, we all need an advocate on our behalf. And I remember, you know, a student might have gotten in trouble or something or, you know, is about to get reprimanded for something. And then, you know, we went up to the the teacher and and started talking about how pleasant he was in the group and what he was learning and, and some of the things that he had been doing. And I think they realized, wow, you know, this is somebody that's also on my side. Or and then we started calling the parents, too. 
And, you know, the parents at first were like, well, you know, why is he in this group? What did he do? What did he do today? <laughs> Say, you know, you do some stuff up at the school. It's like, no, um, he's in our program. We are, we're a violence intervention program, but we're also focusing a lot on leadership and development. Dude, I'm a, I'm a doc from uh, at Kings County and Downstate. And this is what's important for us. And we want to make sure that they succeed and that they, they do well, not even just staying out of trouble. And when you talk to a parent or a guardian or even a teacher, for that matter, as far as what it is that we want to do, and you're focusing on improving safety and increasing mentorship and providing advocates and creating a support system in addition to what already exists at the school, then the teachers and the other people in the school feel like we have an ally. Now, you know, obviously the program has been widely successful. How about the negatives? Has there ever, have you ever encountered a child, a kid, anybody who you just look back and you're like, man, I wish I could have done more to reach them or someone that you just felt like you couldn't, no matter what you did, you couldn't reach them? Right. There, there, there are a couple of kids that we've worked with who, you know, have gone to jail uh, and, and are currently incarcerated. There, you know, there was one kid that we we work a couple of kids we work with that first year that were super intelligent um and you know in and out of trouble but they needed so much support and we didn't have the resources at that time uh, but i remember there was one young man who had been in juvie before and he was he was he was at one of the high schools on the campus that we were working in and you know doing well with us you know we, you know we created like he was like a kind of an OG at age 15, um, but, you know, started doing well. We started really building relationships with them. You know, we started getting them books and really, you know, focusing on where they wanted to be, not where we wanted them to be, but where do they actually want to be and, and see how we could help and support them. And we started seeing the changes in his behavior. I remember he and another kid uh, who would have norm- who would have normally, um, when they came in contact, they would have normally started fighting. Uh, but something happened. They calmed each other down because, you know, somebody said something to one of the kids and one, one of the, the guys said, you know, chill, you don't, don't do that. And the teacher was like flabbergasted that this one kid said, chill out to the other kid. And the other kid was like, all right, cool. And they were like, how do you all know each other? And they were like, nah, we're in the program together. They, they were called, they were calling Kavi the program. And you start seeing how people who could have been considered enemies because of, you know, aggressiveness or maybe come from different gangs, all of a sudden, because they're in a safe space, they've developed a friendship and a level of respect. And because of that, you know, you know, we, we try to emphasize, you know, how do you create mutual respect, no matter whether you're in the space and outside of the space. And when you start seeing young people applying those principles, then all of a sudden they come in. But I remember that one kid, you know, we, he was starting to do really well. And then uh, one day we came up to the school to go meet with them and we saw, we saw the, uh, the sheriffs taking him away and oh, I don't know what happened. I'm not sure if this was something that happened before, but, uh, I never saw him again. Um, I think I, I called once, but, you know, trying to get in touch with somebody who's in juvie and then, you know, he, I think moved from place to place while he was, you know, you know, at the center, you know, when the sheriffs come to pick up somebody who's 15 years old, that's got to be something that's pretty, pretty real. Um, and so I, I lost touch with him and didn't know how to get in touch with him at that time. And so I always wonder what happened to him and some other guys who, you know, also had gone to jail. They were part of our, you know, our first groups and really wishing that we could have provided a lot more social support for them. And then we were, you know, that was also a turning point for me and some of our team. It was like, we got to get some resources. You know, the volunteer thing is great because it brought us together and it gave us a foundation. But this can't be the only only thing that we're doing. You're executive director of Kavi. You're also an activist. It's very clear, obviously, that you 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 play a very strong role in your community. How are you able to balance all of this stuff? And then my next follow up question after that is. Like, take us through your day. Like, what's a normal day <laughs> of you being an ER doc and then trying to work with Kavi, like, and then also being a e- like, how do you are able to balance all of this stuff? Oh, I think probably, I must be. Part of me feels like I'm just completely crazy and I don't know any better. And so <laughs> when you don't know any better, you go okay. Um, but no, I 
you know, I do, I am physically active and that helps, uh, decompress and, and helps me get off stress, but it also helps me learn how to channel energy a lot more efficiently. Um, I, I do martial arts, I do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And even when I was in residency, I did capoeira and then capoeira Angola. So I've always done, like you know, and, and boxing and stuff. So I've always done things that were physically active, because I needed either learn either first it was about getting out aggression, because uh, I'd be so pissed off that I needed to hit something uh, sometimes, and then it became more of like how do I learn how to channel this energy instead of learning how to get off aggression. Mm, um, okay. That the physical activity is important. Um, I meditate probably 30 minutes to an hour every day uh most of the time i'm usually laying down and doing deep breathing exercises and probably 70 percent of the time i fall asleep uh during the meditations uh, at least by the end but um i you have to learn how to quiet your mind uh just to kind of focus on what things are are going on and, you know meditation is you know it, it allows you to become this watcher you know, and instead of assuming, oh, I need to meditate to clear my head, you know, you ain't, you ain't going to clear your head, but you can slow things up so you can start to see what's bothering you, both the right. things that you're conscious about and the things that, you're sub, that, uh, that lie in your subconscious, but allows you to kind of get to that quiet space so that you can really figure out what do I need to do next and so that you're not hindered by uh, things that have taken place in the past. You know, like we all got, we all got problems, but, you know, how do you, how do you fix it? You know. So, Rob, what's your advice for young physicians who are listening to this podcast? They want to have an impact in their communities, just like you are having it. Actually, you're having a very large impact in your community. What's your advice for them who are looking to do something similar in their own community? Uh, so for, for young folks and older people looking to do something similar, um, first figure out, you know, what are the problems that you want to solve? Uh, a lot of us want to help, but we don't, we're not even sure what we're interested in or where our expertise lies. Um, and so figure out what problems do you, you, do you want to solve and figure out how do you want to help. Don't just say, oh, I just want to help with everything. Think about the things that you're interested in and the things that you like doing and, are, and have some skill sets uh, at. Uh, number two is, you know... Um, no one invests in th in theoretical problems, and you know I, I I say that is because you know I think we have these great ideas, and there are a lot of great ideas. Uh, a lot of them don't happen because people are waiting on somebody else to do them. Um, you know, they're different type. You know, when we launched Kavi, and even doing the the work in Haiti, uh, we we're trying to think, oh, we need to have money, 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 money to do this. But there are all sorts of different types of resources. You've got social capital, which can be translated and it can be a particular resource that you can use to start whatever project that you're, you're trying to do. And that, that can go a long way. You can build, you know, use interns, you can use friends. It's not the end all be all, but you, know, you have to start someplace. And you, it might even require you scaling back on what your original project or program is or business, and then over time, you know, you know, having it grow. But nobody's going to invest in anything that you're doing unless they see that you've started something first, because they want to see if you have something that a lot of business people call sweat equity. Um, and if 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 you have invested your time, your money, and your resources, it makes a lot of other people who are coming on say, you know what, I'll invest in them too, because I know they're not going to squander uh, the money or the resources that I'm providing them compared to. You haven't done anything, and you know if something doesn't work, and I just give you some money, I don't know how you're going to respond to it. But if you're personally vested in it, then they go, okay, you've already got something that's at stake. Um, another thing is, be fluid in your approach. Um, we can be so dogmatic and opinionated and obsessive about how things need to look that we get caught up within our own ideas and nothing ever translates because we have this fixed way of doing things and it might be a better way, but given your set of resources right now and what's it's, what's available, you might have to change your approach. And so you've got to be very fluid in what it is that you're doing and kind of adapt to change. Um, another key thing is you got to write things down. Mm, you a, know, I one. have sticky notes, I have sticky pads all over the place. I have note cards 
in my, you know, in, in my car, um, like old index cards. You got your phone. So there's so many modalities that you can use to write things down. Even in my office, I have a blackboard paint wall that I sketch stuff out. Um, if I want to see things like in a really big picture, I got cardboard, um, pieces of cardboard that I have sticky notes and ideas that are organized. You got to write this stuff out. And if you don't write it out, it's going to live in your head. And there are too many great ideas that are stuck in people's heads. And we need to get into the habit of learning how to, you know, not just brainstorm, but start to execute and create prototypes for what things are that we're trying to create. Um, you know, this is, this is, this is a, a process, you know, this is, you're not going to have great days all the time. Um, it's not something that, you know, particularly if this is something that you're passionate about, you know, you got to stay this course, but last but not least, you got to build a team. You have, that team is so important. And when you look at the dynamics of the team, they don't have to be just like you. Matter of fact, I don't really want a, a team full of you know, people who don't sleep that have ADD, because that means <laughs> this stuff is not going to be so neat. Things aren't going to happen when you want it to happen. But you want people that are, are going to share that same vision that you have for what it is that you're working on. It's okay to be, you know, have a different approach, but they've got to share that vision. And you want people that are going to have experiences and expertise that are going to be complementary to what it is that you're doing. So, Rob, we're, we're getting towards the end of the interview. Um, I have a little session that I call just kind of quick, fast questions where I just ask you any type of question, whatever is the top, the, the quickest thing that comes off of your dome piece, just answer it that way. No need to think too much about okay. it. All right. All right. So what's one thing you want listeners to get from this podcast? Oh, I, I want them to be able to experiment and I want them to go out and be, be these change agents that they've talked about. You know, I don't I want them to kind of get out of their heads and move from ideas to action and implementation. Uh, it doesn't, you don't have to be a, a physician. You don't have to go to medical school. You don't even have to be in healthcare. But, you know, being complacent uh, is something that can't continue. Mm, love it. Love it. So who's your favorite hip-hop Oh, artist? wow. There's a lot. It depends on the mood. But, you know, if I had to say one, um, I like Nas. Yeah. Nas, yeah, he's nice. Yeah, he's nice. I love his storytelling. We need a we need we need we need a, we need a stillmatic part two, or I don't know what else you would call it. It was illmatic and stillmatic, but we need something similar to five mics. <laughs> that version, Nas. You know what yeah, I'm saying? Yeah, no, I I feel you on that. Um, you know, I, I quote Nas in some of my talks and stuff, but you know, I like I like how he's evolved as an as an artist from you know, this this kid from Queensbridge to you know, this entrepreneur and venture capitalist and, you know, really becoming this person who, who's got a capacity to, to, you know, to initiate change and stuff and is putting his money where his mouth is. You know, when, when, you, when, you're, when your art and, and your approach to life remains the, the same way it was 20 years ago, you can tell that there hasn't been, there hasn't been any growth. And we've seen that growth with, you know, with, with, with Nas. And so he, he'll be, you know, one of my favorites just because of that. Absolutely. Yeah. Love the answer. What's a life hack that you use for productivity? Oh, life hack? Oh, uh, lead. there's a T-shirt I had in college that said, lead, follow, or get out of my way. And, you know, you, mm. you, you have all these sayings and these slogans, particularly when when things get rough and, and, and you start feeling stagnant. And it's like you start thinking about all those things that used to inspire you when you didn't really have anything. Uh, and then... I got. I have honestly. I have a theme music playlist um, that I have. All right, let's hear so it. So my my theme music playlist, you know, is like almost like super superhero, superhuman kind of music and stuff. That's just kind of that's supposed to kind of get me amped up. Um, you know, there's a lot of Dead Prez. Matter of fact, I I got I got to give a shout out to Dead Prez because I I, I remember when when um, Let's Get Free first dropped. I was a first year med student. And, mm -hmm. you know, I just come up from Atlanta and I had heard about them before. And then they dropped that album and it, it, it maintained a level of consciousness to what I was doing. And, you know, I would listen to it every day over and over and over again, you know, you know, while I was driving to school. And it, it made a lot of this stuff. It, it made me try to stay that course um, for what, you know, why was I there? And you're talking about freedom. You're talking about let's get free. 
and it's bigger than hip hop. It's like, okay, you know, it's bigger than just being in school. And so this, it was like a constant reminder. But that theme music playlist, you know, does have it's bigger than hip hop on there. Um, I got a lot of Kendrick Lamar, uh, mainly like from the second album uh, on there. Um, I I got uh, this cat named Blue B O U, who's from uh, from L A. Uh, is some there's some tracks that you know I feel is like almost like like superhuman super uh, Superman music. B L U. Um, I'm actually pulling up my list right now. Um, I have uh, this one. I like Wale too, and there's this one track. It was him, Meek Mill, and Rick Ross, and it's called Ambition. And so, you know, like when you when I listen to it, like I get in that zone. It's like, all right, I, I'm really creating some stuff. And then, mm-hmm. um, now I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. You know, living in Atlanta, you know, you you get used to all sorts of uh, <laughs> all sorts of musical genres. And I actually I got some too short on there. Uh, Blow the whistle. That's just like a theme song. Like when we when we go snowboarding, they always play it at the National uh, Brotherhood of Skiers. And so mm-hmm. it, it's like one of those feel good kind of tracks. Uh, <laughs> um, and and I got a bunch of most deaf in there. I got a lot of Kanye stuff, the old Kanye stuff. Um, you gonna have to you gonna have to find a way to curate this yo, for us all I, I, so that we can kind of see you what you're doing. I got some stuff on yeah, my man. Spotify list too that you know gets me in that zone. But I got about 200 things because you know, it, you know how you how you are at eight o'clock in the morning may be very different from what you need and how you are at 11 p.m. or three o'clock in mm-hmm. the morning. And you know, you know, as trauma surgeons, as ER docs, you know, we're up at all different times of the day, and you need that extra oomph depending on the time of the day. You don't need to be super animated. Like you need to like just break out of brick walls, but you need to get something that's gonna put you in that special zone. I love it. I love it. Well look, um I want you to finish this sentence for us. It's I'm not just a doc. I'm a I'm not just a a doc. I'm a change agent. Love it. Haven't heard that answer before. That's an amazing answer. Um, Dr. Robert Gore, I want to say thank you very much for being on the show. Um, but I want to take a real quick moment to acknowledge you um, for what you're doing. You know, medicine and taking care of patients, you know, that's a noble thing to the outside world. Um, but for you, me, people who are in the trenches, ER physicians, trauma surgeons, OB, people who, you know, day in and day out are making life and death decisions um, within minutes, um, it can be really stressful. Mm-hmm. You know, it can be really stressful. It can be mentally taxing. And at times, you know, it's really hard to not take things home with you. Um, and I think that we've all developed a way to deal with this on a day to day. And most of us have this wall, you know, that we've kind of set up so that, you know, we don't take our work home with us. If a patient dies, you you kind of live with it for a little bit and then you kind of move on. Um, but, you know, we do it. We kind of make our way through it. But for you, like, you didn't do that, you know, whether it's in Atlanta, Chicago, and now back home in Brooklyn, you know, you fully embraced the community, you fully decided to tackle, you know, one of the root causes of pain and suffering in your own community, which is violence and interpersonal relationships in a grassroots type of way. Mm-hmm. So I've always admired you since I first met you at Cook County Hospital when I was a, you know, a third year, fourth year med student doing a sub I. I was amazed by what you were doing back then. Um, I've been amazed watching you kind of go through your arc and, um, you know, there's a bunch of young physicians out there who look up to you and I just want to say thank you very much for being on Docs Outside the Box. Thank you very much for what you're doing in your community with Kavi. Um, I can't wait to see what's going to happen in five, 10 years. Oh, word. Much appreciated, brother. Uh, I love what you're doing. I I like how you've been creating this space and this platform. Uh, that really didn't exist for for uh, for physicians. You know, nobody thinks about us in this in this capacity, and so it's it's time to to really start showing people. Um, but you know, we've got a long line of physician activists from Che Guevara to uh, Franz Fanon. Um, Stephen Biko was a medical student when he was doing all the work in South Africa uh, around the Black Consciousness Movement. So medical professionals, particularly medical professionals of color have been doing this work, but for some reason, um, we've, we've kind of forgotten this stuff. So now it's a chance for us to kind of reignite that and inspire this next generation. Dope, dope, dope interview. I learned a ton 
from Dr. Rob Gore. I hope you all learned a lot also. Literally a walking laboratory, a walking encyclopedia of how to start a program with very low resources and how to have a very large impact on your own community. If you want to learn more about Kavi, Kings Against Violence Initiative, please check out the website. It's kavibrooklyn.org. Kavi is K-A-V-I, the word brooklyn.org. You can also find them on Instagram, Kavi Brooklyn, as well as Twitter under the same name. Make sure you leave feedback below. Make sure you subscribe as well as leave a review on this episode. But I'm going to catch you guys on the next one. Before I jet, though, remember one thing. We only got one life. Let's make it count and live outside the box. Peace. Peace.